Speaks. Uh, today, we have a very interesting person joining us. Sharon Maratari has uh, a very interesting journey as to how she became an artist, and we have published her in Artemis Journal. Uh, but she was a cosmetologist for 30 years. She had another career, and uh, during this time, she started or founded the Angels with Scissors organization with 150 hairstylists and 43 hair salons, enabling a hair salon for the homeless at the Roanoke Rescue Mission. The organization's goal was successful, and they raised the funds to build a hair salon inside the mission's women's and children's building, where volunteers came in to give free haircuts to the homeless. It wasn't until later in her career that she discovered a love for the arts. After retiring from her career in cosmetology, she began an undergraduate work at, uh, stu in studio arts, obtaining her degree from Hollins University and later receiving a master's of liberal arts. Because her maternal grandparents were Appalachian mountain dairy farmers, she often uses Appalachian themes, such as quilting, storytelling, farming, gardening, and mountain landscapes as themes for her artwork. So there's a lot to unpack here with your life. You've done an amazing, um, done some amazing things. And uh, so welcome, Sharon. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you. I'm very grateful to be here. Well, you're a retired hairstylist, and let's just look at how you started volunteering at the Roanoke Rescue Mission uh, and started the program Angels with Scissors. How did that all begin? So I did hair in Maryland for approximately 30 years until I had a rotator cuff surgery, which ended my career. And we moved back to Roanoke. I was raised in Radford, so I consider Roanoke home. And I had a lot of large oil paintings that I wanted to donate to the brand new women's shelter building. I figured they had a lot of blank walls and they might be able to use some artwork. So I went to the mission and ended up talking to Lee Clark, who was the developmental director at the time. And he ended up giving me a tour of that building. It was just about to open. And in doing so, I mentioned to him I'd had a career as a hairstylist, and he told me there was two women coming once a month, cutting hair, and they would do 24 haircuts each when they were there. I asked him, was there a salon on the premises? And he said, no. And I'm like, where are they cutting hair? And he uh, informed me that they were doing it on the locker room benches in the men's shelter, which are a foot and a half off the floor at best. And I'm like, my God, you'd have to bend over. Uh, it would really hurt your back to cut hair like that. 
And I got chills up and down my spine and out of my mouth popped, do you have room in this building for a hair salon? And Lee stood there for a very long time before he answered and said, maybe we could find room for a hair salon. I think he thought I was crazy at the time, probably. <laughs> so I left that day thinking that I wanted to raise two to $3,000 to buy two hydraulic chairs. That was my small little idea. And I met uh, Susan, who owns Gone Coco, and she introduced me to Veronica at First Street Salon. Veronica got on the phone and called every hairstylist in Roanoke she knew and told them what I wanted to do and asked them to help me. And so I started going in salons. I went in salons for about six months. Uh, and I'd say at least a couple hundred salons. And 43 of them uh, joined Angels with Scissors organization and did haircut-a-thons on the day of their preference, any day in May that year. And they raised six to $8,000. On top of which, every salon I went in practically had something to give, like towels, barbicide combs. We ended up with all of the furniture donated. We didn't have to buy anything for the salon. And the money that we raised did the build out. So there's a three chair salon with a sink on the second floor of that women's shelter building. And stylists still go there to cut hair. Um, and when Joy Sylvester Johnson retired, she sent me a, a lovely letter telling me that she didn't think I realized the ripples that it caused. And since 2005, tens of thousands of haircuts have been done in that building. So um, it was a, a wonderful thing. And I, I did it on the year that uh, I had to wait a year before I could get into Holland's University in-state tuition. So I'd unpacked my house, had time on my hands, didn't know anybody in Roanoke, didn't know the lay of the land in Roanoke. And I see it as a miracle. You know, I see God took this little idea I had and through the generosity of stylists all over Roanoke, it became a very big thing. And um, it really helped to heal uh, my heart because uh, one of another reason I left the area, I had a betrayal that was very painful. And uh, just to see the generosity of all those hairstylists was, it was a miracle. That's a wonderful story. You know, it's uh, a spark of a simple idea, and you worked and you made it happen. And it's wonderful when those kind of things come about. And you are an angel yourself for making that happen, because if you're struggling and homeless or you've come from some abuse in a family or whatever, you know, sometimes we need just a simple haircut or something that'll, you know, boost our self-esteem. You know, we feel like we look better and, and you did it. So hats off to you. Any hairstylist will tell you that our job is more than just cutting hair. You know, it's like we have the power to really uplift people. And in um, every single time that I went to cut hair there, I got more from it than what I gave way more. Some of these people have never, ever had a professional haircut ever. 
you know, so, and they're always very verbally grateful. And um, it's just a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing to be able to, to give of yourself like that. Well, I've often thought of hairstylist as therapist, you know, it's amazing when people start massaging your head and, and washing your hair and, you know, I mean, I, I start talking. I can't believe what I, I tell my hairstylist. I think, my goodness, you know, <laughs> you've, there's, a, there's a comfort level going on. And uh, what you've done and, and helped, you know, create this program, hats off to you. You are an angel. So... From there, and it's still going on, this this Angels with Scissors, your path led you to Holland University here in the Roanoke Valley. And, uh, you know, Holland University, I, I'm a graduate of Holland's as well, and love the university, and so many wonderful people end up there. And, of course, the professors, and I've, I've interviewed several people uh, from the university who have actually sat on my board and helped make Artemis happen. So you you started at Hollins. Tell us about that. So uh, we moved in 2004, and when I was unpacked, I spent about a year with the angels with scissors getting that up and running. And I had to wait a year to get in-state tuition. Um, so I started painting uh, private oil painting classes in Maryland with a client of the salon before I moved back home uh, because I garden and I would get depressed in the winter and I started painting pictures of my garden. So I was already painting and uh, I had some success with that. And um, so when I, I moved down, I applied to Holland's and actually got in, which was a huge, huge surprise to me. I really didn't think I had what it took to go to college. But I got in and I gifted myself a studio art concent, uh, uh, major, a concentration in printmaking. And I took creative writing as a minor and I did the Baton leadership um, because I thought that would help me with the mission, my work at the mission. So um, uh, I got in and I, I went for four years and that wasn't enough because I love learning. And so I decided to stay for the MALS program and did that also in studio art. And, and my thesis is in encaustic wax collage, which is what my book is on uh, that recently got published. Your book, Finding Myself in Salvaged Layers, has recently, as you said, been published. And it's um, about this art, encaustic art. Can you explain to our audience what that is? What is encaustic art? Encaustic wax is actually the most ancient medium um, in the art world. Uh, the, all the old masters used it in their paintings, and it is simply beeswax with Damar varnish crystals that makes the wax harden and pigments. It can be very dangerous because you have to heat it to a molten stage, but if you overheat it, the demark can turn into toxic fumes. So it's very problematic. It also it requires an immense amount of patience because you have a three to five second window from the hot molten wax to your substrate where, before it hardens. So it, it requires immense patience. Um, the oldest known use of it was 2,000 years ago. The Egyptians in the Fayum period used it 
to paint the portraits on the mummy sarcophagi, the mummy coffins. Those portraits still exist. And I recently, but right before COVID, got to see them at the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. And the colors are as vivid as if it was done two weeks ago because the wax preserves anything that it overlays because oxygen can't get to it and anything needs oxygen to decay. So that's why they use it on cars and furniture. It's a, uh, it protects you know, those things. So those paintings have never deteriorated. And um, I love encaustics because it is so versatile. You can embed things in it. You can make it into like sculpture on a substrate. Um, I, I get to use a lot of things that would end up in the trash and uh, embed it in the wax. And uh, I just find it gives you more possibilities than oil painting. So it's one of the reasons I love it. That's very interesting. And you have a book, Finding Myself in Salvaged Layers, which has recently been published. It's a beautiful book. How Thank can you. people find that book? Uh, Amazon sells it. And about 20 some other booksellers all over the world have picked it up now. Lovely. So it's easy. The only thing you have to do is Google the title and you'll find a source uh, for it. Um, Spell your it last is, name so people know how to find you. It's Mirta Harry, M I R T A. H-E-R-I. Sharon Mertahari. Yeah. And finding myself in salvaged layers. That's fascinating. You your your life journey is is amazing and you, you just still keep making things happen. Um, the pandemic has been a challenge to all of us, but of course, being at home we can make more art. Um, we spoke uh, Earlier, you had shared with me that you've had some health issues during this pandemic or even before, and that's been a challenge. And you thought, and we agreed, that you would talk a little bit about that to help uh, shed some light on your journey and, and maybe help others that might be suffering as well. You want to talk a little bit about yeah. that? So about seven years ago, when I was still at Hollands, I had a, an emergency appendectomy, and it took a year to get over that. And then it was downhill after that. And as it turned out, I had four undiagnosed, untreated diseases. I have Hashimoto's thyroid autoimmune, which involves the thyroid gland. I have Lyme disease. I have Bartonella, which used to be called cat scratch fever. It is a tick co-infection. And I have Epstein-Barr virus. And two endocrinologists and my primary failed to diagnose me. I was very sick for 10 years, but I almost died seven years ago from it. When I got out of the hospital, I went to my osteopath. She knew immediately I had Hashi and she saved my life. So I have spent the last seven years clawing my way back to some kind of normal. Uh, I'm still dealing with the Lyme. I'm being treated right now again for it but the Hashi is in remission. And Hashimoto's is the number one disease in the United States right now. It affects more women, eight out of 10 people that have it are women. So there is some hormonal component to it. And uh, it's the number one disease. And 
women especially are falling through the cracks and not being diagnosed, the average amount of time it takes to diagnose it is 10 years, which is ridiculous. That is just unconscionable being in a country that's supposed to have the best medical system in the world. So my heart bleeds for women who are suffering with this disease. So Hashimoto autoimmune disease, that's a thyroid? Yes. Um, it's autoimmune. Your, mm-hmm. your body gets confused and thinks your thyroid is a foreign um, agent and it attacks it and dismantles it. And Lyme can be a trigger for it. It's one of the root causes Um, viruses and bacteria and parasites can be a root cause. So possibly the Lyme damaged my thyroid so much, my body didn't recognize it as thyroid and started attacking the thyroid. Um, And we live here in the mountains. We're uh, infested with ticks. I mean, you know, we love going out and hiking. And of course I do a lot and I have dogs and horses, but uh, you know, we have to be mindful of the ticks. Yeah, They're I, just so prevalent. I, I'm an obsessed gardener. So I got it the first time when I was in Maryland. I didn't know it, but um, right after I started gardening. So I'd had it when I was in Maryland and just didn't realize what it was. And um, it can be devastating. Your body, every cell in your body needs thyroid hormone. So if you're not getting enough thyroid hormone, nothing is working. Your your brain, your heart, nothing. And um, yeah, it's very sad. Why does it take 10 years to diagnose this? That's a good question because they've known about it for a very long time. They've known about thyroid psychosis since the 50s. But, uh, they, you know, I think... I I have very strong opinions about the medical system. There's two systems. There's allopathic and there is, um, uh, you know, they see your body in parts with a lot of specialists. Um, And then there's osteopathic and they see your body as a whole. And so they try to get to the root cause of what got, got you to be sick to begin with and then remove it. Um, and endocrinologists, it's their specialty thyroid. I had two of them that totally missed it. Totally. Part of it is the testing. Um, they don't do a full panel. They don't get the full picture. And they kept just doing a TSH and mine was in their normal range. I had full-blown Hashimoto's though. And my antibodies were like 3000 something really horrific. So I totally fell through the crack. So you, you, when we spoke earlier, you felt like this would be a way to help um, educate people in case they might be stricken with this. What are some of the symptoms if you have this? I had a headache every day for two years that didn't go away no matter what I did. Often went to the emergency room um, and they'd give me morphine. It wouldn't get rid of the headache. That's a pure indication something serious is wrong, right? Uh, body ache, like all your muscles and joints ache, like you've been in a car accident, Uh, what they call um, uh, disturbed sleep. So you can fall asleep, but you keep waking up all night long, especially like three or four in the morning. Uh, Weight gain for no reason, even though your diet hadn't changed. Loss of hair, about a third of my hair fell out. It's a, a, a serious sign that there's a problem either with your iron ferritin or your thyroid. Um, anxiety. It's hard to know if the anxiety was from the Hashimoto's or if it was from the Lyme. 
Lyme can cross the blood brain barrier and it can inflame your brain. So I'm not quite sure which it was. It, it might've been Bartonella, but wicked, awful anxiety. I, I never had anxiety like that in my entire life. Um, there's so many symptoms. Some of those symptoms can mimic other things. I was having heart problems, tachycardia and bajimini, electrical problems. That all went away. All of it went away once my doctor got my thyroid in a normal range, even the heart stuff. So, um, and then I kept being told it was menopause by my primary and the endocrinologist. Um, you know, when I hadn't had my cycle in eight years, I was way past menopause. And that seems to be a reoccurring theme on all the, um, you know, websites I'm on with other Hashi patients, they keep being told the same thing. So it's women who are really suffering. You know, it's like they they just push it off as change in life symptoms. It's not. It's thyroid. Amazing. And a lot of a lot of people have it. I mean, it's the number one disease in the United States. The number one disease. More people have Hashimoto's than have cancer or diabetes or wow. heart issues. Yes. Yes. A lot of women are being put on um, psychotropic drugs for anxiety and depression, and, and it's thyroid related. Uh, they, they have a brief, a medical brief I read titled Thyroid Psychosis from the 50s. But doctors don't seem to know this. You know, I mean, the researchers do, but the doctors need to get a little more education, I think. Oh, my goodness. What a challenge. But you seem like you're coming through it. Of course, it's been challenging also with the pandemic. But then, you know, maybe being so at home was a, a yeah. blessing because you were suffering. If I couldn't afford to go to my osteopath, I'd be dead right now. Wow. If I continued on with my primary care, I'd be dead. So she saved my life and she knew without testing me, I had every symptom of Hashi. She knew before she tested me that I had it. How did she, she know? How did she know that? Oh, I had every single symptom. Mm -hmm. And I probably I had 17 of 21 symptoms of Hashimoto's encephalitis, which is brain swelling. That's oh why I had gosh. the psychosis and the anxiety. My brain was actually swollen. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. This has been rough. Well, I hope it's improving. It sounds like you've yeah, got I'm a blessed. good doctor and you are on the road to perfect yeah. health I'm in again. remission with the Hashi. We're still dealing with the Lyme, but, oh, you know, yeah. I've had it for 20-some years, so I'll probably have it for the rest of my life. And, you know, you just do antibiotics once or twice a year to keep kill enough of it off that you don't have symptoms so if it's mm -hmm. what I gotta do I'll do it I still have a lot I want to do with my life so you know I and bet I, I'm you do. grateful that I'm still here yes and we are grateful you're still here uh, so okay what are your plans for the future what you seem to be getting better so what are you thinking you might want to endeavor I have so much I want to do. I'd like to get back to volunteering at the rescue mission as soon as COVID is finally finished with us. Because of my autoimmune, I can't get vaccinated, so I'm isolating still. Um, and that's not ever going to change. It'll pull me out of remission. So I'd um, like to get back with them, not cutting hair, but I have some other ideas, and I have had them ever since I did an internship there. I have a biscotti recipe, and I have a vision of angel 
biscotti being delivered all over the Roanoke Valley to hair salons as a stream of revenue for the mission, which was a possibility when the cafe was still open. It's closed now due to COVID. But um, so I kind of have that dream. I also thought, I've always thought that Angels with Scissors would be a fantastic national organization. That's a little bit frightening because it could take over my life and I don't have the wherewithal with computer technology. Um, I would have to hire people. So that's on the back burner, like God will make it happen if it's meant to be. Um, and I am currently writing a three book memoir. Um, my, my minor at Hollins was creative writing and I got a lot of it written there. And then I wrote all year, the first year of COVID. So my first memoir book is 95% finished. So um, want to finish that and then the two that follow it. And then uh, I would like to garden and get back to doing my artwork for the rest of my life, you know, so. Well, we published you, as I mentioned earlier in 2015, some of your artwork. But since then, you have uh, started writing and your book, Finding Myself in Salvaged Layers, is quite a bit of writing along with your artwork. So I was wondering if you could share with us some of your writing from the book. I try to practice what the Buddhists call mindfulness wherever I go. So the majority of my inspiration for my artwork comes from the natural world first and then from other artists who are trying to express the natural world or the feelings they have about nature. While nature is my main source of inspiration, I continue to spend a great deal of time looking at classical works as well as the work of contemporary artists. They all inspire me in different ways for different reasons. Van Gogh for texture of the paint, Klimt for his use of pattern, Waterhouse for evoking emotion from the viewer with his romantic portrayal of women. Picasso and Brock for giving us up cubism and a totally different way of seeing things. And Renoir and how he depicted light. Those grapes looked as if they could be plucked off the table. You also have written poetry. You have a poem, ekphrastic poem that you are um, actually it's in this book as well you would you like to read that I'd love to the boating party ah sweet Renoir the intense talent that drives your hand agile steady and sure of purpose each fleck of paint building on reality slightest perceptions of light brings sweating grapes, shimmering crystal to life. I can hear the chatter of contemplative reverie, voices debating politics and social issues, vogue fashion of the day, methodical lapping of water, saltiness perfuming air against rocking boat, accompaniment to intimate conversation, I hear tinkling laughter and giggles from the women, amused by male flirtations and flattery. 
Your strokes convey the mellowness brought by flowing crimson wine, taking all my cares away as I drown in your canvas, a river of contentedness, making speaking gentlemen more interesting, sharpening my ears to what he has to say. I taste the warm, buttery, piquant cheese as it coats my palate, tart, sweet ripeness of grapes. Wine and companionship makes the pinching of my corset, the heat of layered clothing, sweat trickling down my spine, bearable. I can feel the texture of clothes, persimmon and sunflower yellow draped on bodies, starched lace prickles my neck, brightly colored hats worn on heads adorned with ribbon and silk flowers. I am in the presence of great talent, artists and writers, extreme thinkers of our day. How deft your hand, how true your sight, oh Renoir, to make this scene come to life. Wonderful. Well, so that's an ekphrastic poem, and it's a poem written about a specific piece of art, and I think most people are aware of Renoir's Boating Party. It, we all love that piece, and that's a beautiful poem. What a wonderful way to acknowledge and pay homage to Renoir. Wonderful. Thank you, Sharon. The Boating Party by Renoir is the crown jewel of the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C. And my first painting instructor, Denny Arant, used to take us there on field trips all the time because a lot of the art that's hung at the Phillips Collection were his friends in the 50s, and he knew them. It was like visiting his old friends. So I spent a lot of time looking at that painting. Well, thank you, Sharon, for sharing your journey today with us. You have an amazing life path. Uh, I'm so glad you found art, and now that's going to take a life of its own. It'll have wings, I'm sure. So we look forward to publishing you again. And uh, thank you to you and to our audience for joining us. This is a bi-monthly podcast featuring published artists and writers from the Artemis Journal. Our previous podcasts can be found on our website, www.artemisjournal.org slash podcast. They're all archived. This podcast was recorded at Final Track Studios along with Skip Brown, my co-producer. I'm Jerry Rogers, and until next time, I'm going to leave you with this thought. Art is the only way to run away without leaving home. You've been listening to Artemis Speaks. Artemis is a charitable organization now 43 years old and has evolved to be all-inclusive, a journal with essays, poetry, and art. 10% of the journal's sales are donated to a woman's shelter in Southwest Virginia. If you're interested in learning more, artemisjournal.org. You can mail us directly P.O. Box 505, Floyd, Virginia, 24091. 
The closing music and the opening music you're listening to is Jordan Harmon. And the song is Just Slow Down, a very appropriate comment for the times that we're in. If you want to read, you have to slow down. Artemis Speaks, the podcast, is recorded twice monthly at Final Track Studios in Roanoke, Virginia. All rights reserved and is co-produced by Jerry Rogers and Skip Brown. Just slow down.